Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by Reverend Eric Atchison. I should say Reverend Dr. Eric Atchison. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I try to tell people my wife is Dr. Atchison. I just, uh, I want to get uh, uh, those address labels that say real doctor and fake Dr. Atchison. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, so I usually ask or talk to my guests about how I know them, or in this case, I really don't know you. Uh, I know you through Twitter, I guess, social media. So yeah. tell me uh, tell me about yourself and tell our listeners about yeah. yourself a little bit. Um, I will say I don't under underrate uh, Twitter relationships because it's how I have uh, the position that I'm uh, closing out now. It's uh, May when we're recording this. Yeah. Um, I was uh, Twitter friends for many years with a Presbyterian pastor here at uh, Vancouver First Press, and they were staffing up to get a full-time associate pastor uh, from the, within the PCUSA in place, uh, and they needed someone to kind of hold down the fort for a year and a half to two years while they did that search, and he basically called me up and said, hey, you know, we don't really have a good interim candidates. So you want to do this for me? Mm-hmm. I was like, sure. So... <laughs> Uh, Twitter is actually responsible for the for the job I've had for the past almost uh, two years, and um, so it's hard for me to to say, well, you can't uh, sort of get to know anybody uh, that way. And um, yeah, as 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 bizarre as it sounds, I think sometimes as, as much as people will put on masks online, yeah, with fake accounts and fake personas. Sometimes you can get a gander at what people are really like when sort of they don't have the consequences of, of having to say something to you face to face. That's it's a great a, point. It's a really odd place to be human. I was listening to one podcast, uh, pastor's podcast the other day, and a story about one pastor who, when he received critical emails from people, would make them come into his office. Hey, say, hey, come in my office. Now read this email to me. Yeah. <laughs> and they never could. Well, tell me about uh, as much as you like about your story, kind of what it means, what it's meant to you to be a Christian in the past, and kind of yeah. what, if there's any difference, what that means to you now. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, we were talking a little bit before we went uh, live here uh, about kind of our respective ministry paths. And, um, you know, you had talked about coming in initially through the, the UCC, and I'm a, a basket to casket, I call it, a disciple of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, my... Uh, I was raised in the church by my mom and she was raised in an Armenian congregationalist church in Detroit, Michigan. Okay. And she and my dad moved to to Kansas for both of them for jobs, uh, for work. And while there aren't many Armenians in Kansas, there are a lot of congregationalist followers. Yeah. And that's, and she kind of landed in the disciples as a result and raised both my sister and me in the disciples. And you know, our very, vividly remember being baptized 
you know, being asked by uh, my childhood pastor, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and do you accept him as your savior? And I think that's a perfectly good sort of question to, to ask as sort of the premise of baptism. It's, it's what I ask mm-hmm. uh, people when I baptize, baptize them today. And I would say that that has been for the past couple few decades, what it tends to mean to be a Christian is a profession of faith. Yeah. And I would even go so far as to say that sort of all the other trappings have kind of been de-emphasized in favor of that profession of faith, yeah. which is why things like the sinner's prayer are so popular. Yeah. It really probably uh, shouldn't be um, that this profession of faith becomes the requirement, not just for Christian identity, but for employment within a lot of Christian institutions. Yeah. Yep. Uh, or for membership at a lot of uh, churches to have a statement of faith, not just sort of the the minimalist disciple style, sure, or, or no creed but Christ, but a really extensive um, sort of creedal litmus test. And so I think that's what it's meant to be Christian for me in the past, and why for a long time I actually, my, as a child, I never thought I could be a minister or should be a minister because I wasn't the right kind of Christian. Wow. Okay. I wasn't the sort of Christian that sort of saw the appeal of, 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 of belief or doctrine as the be all end all. Yeah. And I would say today how that's changed has been the result of sort of this Renaissance that we're seeing as a result of, of people like uh, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, the second. Yep. Uh, and Liz Theo Harris, the work they do with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, I think we see it sort of in the in the shift in in, in Roman Catholicism from Pope from Benedict to Francis. Yep, I I think we're seeing a shift towards not away from belief, but belief plus belief. Okay, plus. great. Like, sort of back to that sort of core teaching in in the letter of James that faith without works is dead. Well, we've seen kind of what treating, um, putting such a heavy emphasis on doctrine has done in terms of relational harm that it's done to uh, LGBTQ Christians, people of color, um, uh, indigenous groups, that sort of thing. And so, well, how do we keep the keep sort of the core belief of affirming Christ, but then add to it in a different way? And I think that a lot of these these figures are kind of showing us that way of what it means to be Christian now. That's really good, and you're you're on topic for sure <laughs> for the pod. So thanks. Tell our listeners who are, may not be familiar UCC what that means, and oh, yes. it's go a, into like. The congregationalists yeah, a little bit, if you want. Al- alphabet soup of Christian denominations. Right. So, um, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, which we're a part of, is um, has what's called full communion with the United Church of Christ, which is another mainline Protestant denomination. And for uh, us as clergy, what that means is we could theoretically serve a United Church of Christ church, even though we're not UCC. Right. And the UCC has sort of a, a history of um, sort of being on the cutting edge of social activism, especially I think for LGBTQ equality in the church. Yeah. Um, and 
is sort of very predominant in some of the areas where disciples maybe necessarily aren't. Mm-hmm. Like disciples were kind of, uh, in some ways, a regional denomination trying really hard to be a national denomination. Hmm. But we're strongest, like we're most numerically sort of uh, concentrated, um, more kind of in the Rust Belt and Appalachia. Right. Like many of us, you know, in our areas in the Rocky Mountains and the West Coast. Yep. Um, and so in other areas of the country, the United Church of Christ tends to have uh, more of a presence. Yeah, great, great, thanks. Well, uh, Eric is also an author, and Eric, you have a couple of books I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, you have a book you've written previously called Organ Trail Theology, and also another book coming out called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. But first, I want to ask you kind of what moved you to write Organ Trail Theology. Uh, we're both, I'm guessing, around the same age, yeah. although I think you're, I think I'm a little bit older than you, actually, and sadly, I did not grow up playing Organ Trail Theology uh, I did not have a video game system like my entire life, <laughs> but uh, tell me uh, how that relates and uh, how yeah. much that inspired you to write that book. So um, in 2014, uh, a writer named Anna Garvey coined this term called the Oregon trail generation. Mm-hmm. And what she was trying to do was to come up with a term for that sort of decade of, of people born in the 1980s Um it was sort of to differentiate between sort of older millennials and younger millennials. Not that anyone experience is better, just different, right? Different experiences. Um, And that's the term she came up with because of the ubiquity of the Oregon trail video game, which, you know, if you never played growing up, you can still play online. (laughs) I'll have to check it out then. Yeah. Uh, And I actually use that as part when I, when I, whenever I, um, teach from the book as we play a little bit of Oregon trail as a group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of kind of that common experiential denominator, she came up with this term, the Oregon trail generation. And it sort of spoke so profoundly to me being raised in Kansas city, which was the jumping off point for the Oregon yeah, trail. Right. Right. Landing here in the Pacific Northwest, which was the ending point. Yeah. I'm like, I actually have kind of, lived yeah, you've, this you've taken the path in a yeah. way and so how could i take the elements of the game and use them to explain sort of this topic that has caused so much uh, uh i guess weeping and gnashing of teeth in the in the church which is what has happened to uh our younger yeah. generations yep and it wasn't sort of meant, I, I, I never wrote it trying to say like, this is a universal thing for, for, for everyone who was kind of born in the eighties, but to take a lot of the data that was being sort of cited in these articles that were, were sort of asking, why is the sky falling? And then placing some stories from sort of being in the trenches of seminary and, and, and professional ministry with young adults to say, here's kind of what, what I can tell you from both sides of that coin. So mm-hmm. I can't just sort of rely on anecdotes. Like that's not necessarily representative. Yeah. You just look at the data, they're numbers on a page. They don't yep. tell uh, necessarily a full story. So I try to use both. And then I take elements from the game, like having to uh, ford the river, go hunting, shopping for supplies. And each of those themes then kind of becomes a chapter in which I discuss this relation, this sort of very fraught relationship that is capable of a lot of spiritual richness, 
but is also, I think, filled with a lot of apprehension and trepidation because we are the first generation to have grown up completely with the, with the religious right and its modern incarnation in mm-hmm. the background. Yep. And that, I think, has really shaped our generation's relationship with sort of public Christianity. Yeah, what we understand is Christianity. Yep. Yeah. And, and, I, and I say, like, sort of the Christianity that's for public consumption. Yeah. You know, we may not see the neighborhood church that is, you know, operating a soup kitchen on the news all that often. Yep. You know, but whenever Jerry Falwell Jr. runs his mouth about Muslims, it makes the six o'clock news. Yep. Right. So that's, kind, that's part of the conundrum is you have, you have a generation that feels understandably repulsed by this. And as they move away from the church, that then becomes their entire experience of the church is when it's in the news yeah. or something really negative. And so how do we kind of create a counter narrative? And yeah. that was MTT in a nutshell. Um, well, yeah, that's great. Thank you. There's a, a quote, I think that for me just sums it up perfectly from your book, like the, the frontier millennial Christians face, which mm-hmm. metaphorically, literally, like it's all this new and brave frontier mm-hmm. that millennial Christians are having to explore. Yeah. And I'll say I work in a church plant context and you, you have this quote from your book about young families and households that are seeing these highly valuable in church planting because trust me i can attest to that yeah yeah and that they're facing a pretty significant financial crisis mm-hmm. on their own yeah. uh so i could talk from my experience as a church planner about that but i want to hear your perspective yeah. Uh, so, yeah so this idea that like i i definitely was fed this line in seminary like if you grow the church the money will follow yeah and i want to like uh, like and I'm just speaking about that one instance of my seminary education, not all of it, but in that <laughs> one instance, totally wrong, completely wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, my first, my, my first church out of seminary, it wasn't a church plant, but it was sort of a, a replanting of kind of this historic congregation that was very old, didn't really reflect its, its neighborhood or its context anymore. And we grew a lot with a lot of young families. Mm-hmm the money did not follow yeah. because we have sort of, again, sort of this Oregon trail generation has really taken it, taken it on the chin, not financially once by graduating into yeah. the great recession from college, but now a second time when we should be starting to enter some of our highest paying yeah. years in our careers. So um, this idea that, young families are the key to unlocking the sort of financial stability of the church. Yeah. Sort of was always too good to be true. And it really puts a lot of pressure from my perspective on young families because older members and church uh, folks in church kind of look to young families and kind of put that pressure on them and Mm -hmm. say, Hey, we contributed at these levels when we're your age, why you're not stepping up. Right. Yeah. And you know, of course, the response was, "Well, you know, when it was a totally different, yeah, not totally different. It was it was a different economic paradigm than where people still had pensions." Yeah. You know? So, how does that dealing with that reality? How did for you in the past and your past ministry context, and, yeah. and again, going forward, because uh, this podcast seems to be you know talking about the future. Yeah. Like, 
how do you navigate that? How did you navigate and how do you see navigating that real challenge in the future when obviously we want to grow our churches and we want to get young families because they are the present yeah. and future of the church, but there's a very real reality yeah. of the financial challenges that come along with that. Um, I think of something ironically that, uh, and I say ironically because he, he sort of referred to himself as the worst possible kind of atheist, but something that Anthony Bourdain said uh, <laughs> in his last book before, before he passed away. Yeah. Um, and he was describing kind of the effect that the Great Recession had on the, on the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. Like it was massive, like yeah. wipeouts. And he said um, it, it, it sort of forced, it, it ended a lot of assumptions and had to sort of create new expectations of value. Like what is valued yeah. when you go out to eat? Like, is it sort of the respite from cooking? Is it because it's a special occasion? Like what creates the value? So what creates the value of a religious experience with God as meditated through Jesus Christ? And I think that answer is a little different now than it has been. And the church, it's been tough to catch up to that. Yeah, that's a great and, observation. And so what, they, what, what people may have wanted to pay for in the past, yeah. we look at sort of our smaller budgets and think, why should I be paying for that? Yeah. Why not pay for this instead that is maybe a little more economical and we think maybe might serve the church's mission? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, and that's really, in my experience, kind of where, kind of, uh, where, where kind of we've landed. It's not, it's not that there's no way forward. There absolutely is. Yeah. It's just one that is, is maybe a little, too, a little too much of an unknown for us. And unfortunately, I do think there, there are some congregations that fear death less than they fear that new path. <laughs> yeah, I've, I 100% agree, Eric. There are definitely congregations who fear death, or yeah, fear death less than the new path. Absolutely. Something you're getting at in that point, again, tying back to a quote from the book about millennials determined to make a difference in the world, mm-hmm. kind of, I think, goes back to what you just said about millennials still want to make a difference. It just It's different how they see investing yeah. their money and time and resources in making a difference, right? Yeah. And, and they realize, we realize, I think, that the church is no longer the only game in town to do that. Yeah. Now, the church does continue to be the only game in town to do that in a way that puts Christ kind of as the motivating factor. Right. Like, that's what makes us unique. But if all you want to do is sort of, um, you really want to help people out of experiencing homelessness, well, Habitat for Humanity is everywhere. Right. Really interested in is expanding your intellectual horizons. You don't have to take a, a Wednesday evening class at church or Sunday school. You can um, take a class at the local community college. So or Curiosity Stream yeah. or all these different yeah. you know resources. Yeah. Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Should. Love Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> so so where the church may have co- like felt comfortable because there was something of maybe not maybe not quite like a monopoly but a little more. Uh, market share, for lack of a better term, yep, yep. we haven't adjusted well to that reality that, oh my gosh, this has been totally democratized and ex- made accessible in ways that we could never have imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and again, like we've kind of, I think the church has been slow to, to react to some of that. And I, I can't tell you, I'm not the person to tell you exactly like what that cutting edge looks like. Yeah. Because the truth is there are people, uh, church planners like yourself, people who are uh, replanting or reseeding churches who are doing creative things that I would have never come up with if I hadn't seen them doing it first. So I'm not like the person to say, well, this is the way forward. But if you look at people in their individual contexts, and I think that's something that Mission Gathering has done a really good job of doing, because uh, we've got a Mission Gathering uh, a church up here in, in Washington. In this yeah, yeah. Is, is, is really paying attention to what works and what doesn't in that local context. Yeah. It might work really well here in Washington State. may go over like a lead balloon somewhere else. Yep. Um, and that's another thing that I think uh, the, the main line, especially really kind of is, is really working at trying to get better at doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it reminds me of, you probably read it, the Cliff Christopher book, not your parents offering plate about how, you know, 50 years ago, there was mm-hmm. the, the only game in town as far as nonprofit giving was churches. And mm-hmm. now there's countless mm-hmm. nonprofits and everybody's asking for, and there's only so many nonprofit dollars to go around. Yeah. So even from that perspective, it's challenging. Yeah. And, and it's sort of made doubly so because of the accountability that has also come with the, the, ac- the sort of access to information and technology. Yeah. Shouldn't be the case, but churches do still kind of, we, we, we suffer from, you know, guilt by association with televangelists, with yep. churches that have had financial improprieties. And people ask, well, why should I like, why should I give this money if I'm not sure it's going to be used the way I want it to? Yep. And yep. and and maybe that shouldn't be the case for that that neighborhood church that's just trying to to sort of uh, help people who have fallen through our safety nets, sort of pretty wide cracks. But it is reality. Yeah. Well, we're kind of touching on the surface. Mm-hmm. And all around the edge of what your next book is about, at least as I understand it, on earth as it is in heaven. So tell me how this relates, how this book relates to Oregon Trail theology, if it does or doesn't, and then kind of what pushed you into that book. Yeah. So there was a chapter in OTT about sort of the economic realities that the older millennials faced that offered sort of a, a springboard into on earth as it is in heaven. And the other springboard that really created this opportunity um, was my doctor of ministry research for Seattle university in which Mm. I studied um, Christian values and labor organizing here in Washington state. And specifically in the instance of um, uh, the school teacher strikes that have now taken statewide twice in four years. Yeah. And at the same, and while that was happening for the first time in 2015, I believe, um, the mill workers at the largest pulp and paper mill in the area had also gone on strike. So two of wow. the three largest employers in town, yeah. their workforces were all, all on strike. And I was asking myself, what's the church's role here? Yeah. Um, and that like answering that question became the sort of the driving part of my research and what the unionized workers who were members of churches said uh, almost unanimously was you know, we don't necessarily want or need um, the church to like just to be partisan on our behalf. Mm-hmm. 
but the church does need to recognize that it does still have this unique role of cultural cachet or soft power in the community. And it can use this to create venues where we can talk about what we need as, mm. as workers and as Christians. What do we need spiritually? What do we need emotionally and mentally to get through something as, as stressful and financially uh, punishing as a strike? Yeah. And that sort of became the whole impetus behind on earth on earth as it is in heaven was, well, okay, how, how, how can we have these conversations if there's sort of nothing to base them on? Right. How, so, and that's why I saw it as a toolkit was there are, there's Bible studies in there. There's discussion of church history. There's um, discussion of contemporary experience. There are study guide questions that kind of go along with those items. It's all meant to generate those sorts of conversations that uh, union workers who practiced Christianity told me they really would want to see in a, in a church context. Um, and so again, it's not sort of a, you know, here's the solution, go and apply it sort of a thing. Yeah. Meant to help guide um, Christians in their own context towards, okay, what might be the step I can take? Cool. Now I'm curious because um, it kind of goes back to what we kind of talked about earlier. This kind of, for many folks who grew up in our generation and younger, the, like you said, the only kind of real version of Christianity they've seen is the religious right. And I, I grew up independent Baptist, so certainly I was a part of that. And I remember in Bible college, like, you know, folks would come in and talk about, you know, voting for freedom first. Mm-hmm. And this idea where there was this melding of Republican uh, ideology yeah. with uh, Christian values. Mm-hmm. So uh, for many, for many folks, for many Christians, that's yeah. kind of like, that's the only, that's anything that's not understood in that kind of context is yeah. seen as unchristian and ungodly. How, how do you, how do you relate to those or yeah. how would you relate? Uh, you oh. know, Oh, Lord have mercy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was you know, being born and raised in Kansas. Yeah. You know, I talked about that and sort of not being seen as the right kind of Christian. That was part of right. uh, that experience. I was not taught evolution in my public high school because mm-hmm. the, th- that brand of Christianity controlled the state school board at the time and they removed it from the curriculum. I didn't read Darwin until I was a junior in college and it was for European history. It wasn't even for, for science. science. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think my response would be twofold. One is just on a purely scriptural level. What do, what, what is it that the centurion says at the foot of the cross when Christ dies? Surely this man this is man the son is, of God. Yeah. And for me, it's important that the centurion isn't named. The centurion okay. can act as an audience proxy. Mm-hmm. And this sort of is where I would sort of bring our conversation full circle, where how do we move past the statement of belief? So yeah. So the centurion statement of belief. Surely yep. he's the son of God. The implication there is that Caesar isn't. Wow. Okay. And so yeah. the tough thing is that I think for Chris, a lot of this, this particular brand of Christianity that, that you, you, you share about. Yep. There is this pursuit of Caesar like power rather than Christ like power. Hmm. 
And so I think that's one way to refocus Christianity. And I think the other way to do that is to sort of emulate the example of um, of sort of historical Christianity. And by that, I mean, uh, take the example I cited earlier of William J. Barber uh, sort of bringing back the poor people's campaign. Yeah, yep. Um, Which goes back to Dr. King for those exactly, unfamiliar. Exactly. Like, it's not that William Barber thought that he was special enough to reinvent the wheel. Right. He saw that his predecessors had already left the blueprints. Like, I don't think we as sort of um, a, a Christianity, representing a Christianity that's meant to be thoughtful and compassionate. Yeah. I don't think we need to ask people to reinvent the wheel. We just need to look back to the historical antecedents of people who sort of left us their, their architecture. And, and I think that's, that's a great point to bring up because at least as I, at least in my context, when I grew up, there was kind of this uh, forgetfulness of church history, yeah. even in America. And this idea that like these 20 years, like 1980, like mm-hmm. the birth of religious right, like that is what entails Christianity. So yeah. if I'm hearing from you, it sounds like one of the best ways to in- reintroduce people to this broader scope of Christianity is just talk about yeah. church history in a bit. And there's a, and there are a lot of ways to do that. And that, that, and that's also part of the point behind on earth as it is in heaven is to introduce people to some of this history that doesn't get told for any number of reasons. A lot of it has to do with racism. A lot of it has to do with socioeconomic class. Um, And some of it honestly just has to do with, we have done a really bad job explaining what, um, what history can teach us. Yeah. And yeah. like, just as an example, like here in the, in the disciples of Christ, um, they're like, we were founded by somewhat by a non-Trinitarian abolitionist. Like Barton Stone was a heretic to a <laughs> lot of basic yeah, by a lot of standards, um, and instead of like not teaching that, why are we not proud as as, as heck about that? Yeah, like what? Like that's something that I feel like is incredibly important. Is we're you know we're the denomination that gave the world Preston Taylor and William J. Barber and Ter- Terry Hordo, and like mm-hmm. we are. Um, we we have this story that we need to get better at telling, and yeah. not just the disciples here, but just Christianity. Yeah, and it doesn't get told because um, of the way we've allowed history to get written, and in some cases, the way we have really sort of, for lack of a better term, revised that history. Yeah, to sort of take away those contributions of people who are of color or female or just otherwise seen as seen as other. Yeah. Well, for those unfamiliar, Barton Stone is one of understood as kind of one of being one of the two key founders of the Christian church disciples of Christ, or more broadly speaking, the restoration movement Mm -hmm. uh, and our, our cousins, I guess, ecclesiological cousins, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So tell me, I want to, 
I want to ask too, how do you see or how would you frame it to our listeners or for those kind of unfamiliar and this is a new idea, like how would you frame what I'm going to, what I'm going to say is economic activism, if that's a fair term, how how would you frame that as an act of faith? Because again, I think we so often in so many segments of Christianity that's seen as being political, that's seen as being, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so I would I would I would say it functions that way in a couple of ways. Yeah. Um, one of the the bits of research I did for the book was interviewing an old uh, college classmate of mine. He actually he and I actually debated together on the Lewis and Clark debate team, and he now organizes for the uh, SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Okay. And he said that one of the most important things that churches can do is to create a framework of values where one might not have existed before. And by that, he said, he, he sort of explained like we can take, um, you know, a, a, a workers sort of fight for fair pay or for uh, workplace protection and safety and say, here is why this matters for reasons way beyond one person. Why yeah. it matters for the, like for the community, for the collective, um, in a way that is not necessarily unique because you do have philosophies of the common good that, that right. Right. Christianity based, but which still, um, creates, um, still adds to that understanding of what the common good means. Um, and he said that we can do that and use our, our own sort of cultural capital so that the workers who are already organizing and, 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 and sacrificing on strike so that they don't have to. So another way to put it is that we are sacrificing our cultural capital on behalf of others. And I think that's tough because white Christianity is, is like the pinnacle of cultural capital in the United States. Yeah. And we've historically been so loath to give that up. Yeah. And yet, when I, you know, when I talk to this good friend who is organizing on behalf of these workers, he says, no, that's actually what is absolutely necessary. Huh. Um, wow. It's like, that is the work that can make a difference is to, is, is to, is to expend that capital on behalf of others and to give it up to, to sort of be sacrificial, which is sort of a, a should be a thoroughly Christian value. And yet, One would think. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yet again, like I said, we, we, we really pursue this, this Caesar power yeah, and have, and have really been reluctant to give it up. What are those, what are some other Christian values that you would, you would say immediately tie into this? Yeah. Um, I would say the reversal of circumstance or reversal of fortune. So in, in Luke's sermon on the plane, in Luke yeah. 6, which is Luke's sort of best of version of the sermon on the Mount. Right. It's not enough for Jesus to say, blessed are dot, dot, dot. Yep. He follows it up with woe to the opposite. So blessed yeah. are the poor, woe to the rich. Blessed yeah. are, the, are the sad, are the mourning, woe to those who are happy. Mm-hmm. So there is this reversal of circumstance that is meant to sort of change the outcomes, not just for the poor or the marginalized or the oppressed, but are meant to change outcomes for the people who have the power as well. Hmm. And even people as orthodox as C.S. Lewis would say that. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, 
um, that Christian sacrifice should hurt. They should pinch us. There should be things that Christians with means should not be able to do because their sacrificial giving keeps them from doing those things. I mean, I guess that's the challenge right now within kind of our modern cultural context of cultural Christianity is this idea that Mm -hmm. being a Christian means kind of having it all, having the good life, right? And what you're saying is, as you understand it, following Jesus means sacrificing something. And and sometimes that may mean sacrificing our own income or status so that those less fortunate or on the margins can do better. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And and it's not even just a matter of having it all. It's just a matter of being at least slightly higher on the ladder. Yeah. Like I may not be wealthy. I may not have a nice house, but if I am a Christian, it means that, sort of my holidays are the ones that are, are, are federal holidays. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I, I get to say, you know, we should say Merry Christmas and not happy holidays. Like it's this, it's this, mm. like I said, this cultural cachet. And so even if you don't have the white picket fence, you can still say, well, I should still be on top in other ways. Wow. So you're, so if I'm hearing you, it's kind of this, yeah, like the reversal you're talking about is of being a, it's a, it's a complete, if I'm hearing you right, like a misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus and that yeah. you're saying, like, we've been so into this kind of like, I get, like you said, this way of Caesar, um, of power and privilege. And you're saying the way of Jesus is death and sacrifice, if I'm yeah, and, and the giving up of, Yeah, and the giving up of things. Like, yeah. What, to sort of go back to that holidays example, what if we gave up Christmas as a national holiday Hmm. and said, okay, we're going to make uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur national holidays. or We're going to make um, Mubarak and Ramadan a national holiday instead of Christmas. Why should Christmas be a national holiday? Easter's not a national holiday. Why should Christmas? Like, and so if we give that up and sort of seed that, um, territory is that actually a loss for Christianity, or mm-hmm. is it, a, or is it a growth opportunity? Wow, that's a good future Christian question right there. Um, and I think that's part of the question that we have about sort of a lot of that cult- cultural currency we have, and yeah. some of the hard currency we have. And um, you know, what what can we give up that creates growth? And, um, and I have to be honest, that's been a question that has sort of created a lot of sort of a lot of the loudest backlash to on earth as it is in heaven, because the entire last chapter is about the giving up on behalf of sort of this history of, of, of racial, um, and gender depression in the United States. And you now have seminaries starting to make reparations. Mm -hmm. What, what might that look like? Um, and that has, that has really pushed some buttons. Wow. When all I'm really talking about is what can we give up that creates growth for ourselves, for others, for people we may have hurt, for mm-hmm. people we have historically hurt, what can we give up to create growth? Well, I love that the way you're, you're talking that is my next question I want to get into, but I, I love the way you're talking about that as as I'm hearing it, like a spiritual practice, right? 
So if I'm hearing you right, you're talking about sacrifice as a spiritual practice. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I would include that sort of, so we've talked in this vein now for several minutes about the giving up of uh, cultural capital on behalf of workers, of giving up material resources, whatever that is, like that is something that the Jesus teaches has spiritual rewards, whether it's the, to the rich young man yep. or whether it's in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there is this spiritual reward that comes from, from giving up means. Hmm. And I think that well, is, now you're preaching, Eric. <laughs> you're preaching. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> it's, I, I, I don't get to do it very often in this. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, how so to kind of go back to the 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 impetus behind on earth as it is in heaven how do we get ourselves to the point where we're we're ready to make those sacrifices oeh kind of tries to help give you some of those spiritual tools so that it doesn't feel like um it it doesn't feel like you're having to do this under duress like it's it's supposed to help it's supposed to help kind of lead you to um a place where this, it, it makes sense spiritually. Well, that's, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I like, I need to go buy the book immediately and just read the last chapter. Cause I'm, I'm desperate to know, desperate to see that. Cause you've, <laughs> you've whetted my appetite so much. Well, let's, let's take a quick break here and then we'll finish up with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Eric Atchison. And Eric, you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to, but let's say if you were Pope for a day, what's yeah. your first move? Oh. Um, I, uh, I wonder how I got here. I got my, uh, <laughs> I got my demon degree from a Roman Catholic uh, university, but I didn't, I didn't know that, that by itself was enough. Um, I would... It's a really good question that I didn't have a great answer for. And the closest I could come up with um, was to sort of say, well, let, let's, let's do this thing that actually they'd started, that the church had started to do for this um, review of Pius Twelfth, who was the Pope during World War II, mm-hmm. um, which was to just simply open up all of the archives, all of the Vatican. Ooh, archives. that would be fun. Um, yeah. It, well, it was it was definitely a double-edged sword in the case of Pius the Twelfth because I mean, they fun for us, not for the Roman Catholic Church, right? Yeah. Well, they, there's it's something that coming from being being ethnically Armenian and having Turkey close off its archives, its World War One archives mm-hmm. uh, for the service of genocide denial, that I realized I'm really sensitive about, and I think. Mm-hmm there would be a lot to learn, you know, both good and bad from just opening up history. And I feel like that does tie into some of what we've been talking about earlier about um, how do we teach history and how do we claim it? And, um, and then hopefully how do we begin to heal from it? Well, that's great. Yeah. Tell me, uh, are there any theological or, historical Christian figures you'd want to bring back to life or meet? Mm-hmm. 
so uh, a few years ago, um, I did a sermon series at my previous congregation uh, asking them, who is your Mount Rushmore of faith? Okay. Four people. And for me, um, uh, two of the people I would absolutely bring back uh, and I end up preaching on were uh, Soren Kierkegaard, which was sort of my pet theological oh, okay. dirty project. Yeah. Um, and then I also preached on uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, okay. Because uh, when I was in college, uh, I went on a, a, a trip to... Um, to South Africa with Global Ministries, which is the UCC Disciples International Mission Arm. Yep. Um, and that was a, a sort of genuinely life-changing experience for me uh, because apartheid had ended when I was very young. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really understand the significance right. yep. of what it meant for Nelson Mandela to A, be released from prison and B, become the president of a, of a post-apartheid South Africa. Yeah. Um, and so I was sort of too young to appreciate what that meant in real time. And this gave me a chance and, and that trip gave me a chance to begin to appreciate it. And then I got to revisit it with that, with that sermon series. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, you're probably familiar with the work of Phyllis Tickle to mm-hmm. some extent. Mm-hmm. There's an evangelical Brady Shear, and he kind of talks similarly in a way, uh, less philosophical, we might say about this kind of time we're living in, uh, being one of those kind of pivotal 500 year type moments. Yeah. What do you think history will remember about kind of our current time and place? So it's funny. I actually, I said in, uh, in Oregon trail theology, I'm not sure that we're actually living through like another once every 500 years reformation. Mm -hmm. But what I do feel like might be on the horizon is another great awakening. So we've had, depending on, on kind of, yeah. Which historian you ask, we've had three or four great awakenings in U.S. Christian yep. history. Uh, well, I mean, the first one was right before the formation of the U.S. It was when uh, it was still the colonies. Um, but that is that is sort of what I imagine happening now is mm-hmm. a um, is a is a, is an awakening that kind of does what the the previous ones did and really reshuffle the religious paradigm of wow. yeah. North America. Correct me if I'm wrong. The disciples of Christ were born out of that second, second awakening. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I think like just as the second great awakening was a response to the first, mm-hmm. um, I think you could see the next great awakening as sort of being a response to kind of that rise of the really modern religious right that we've been talking about. Wow. Um, well, that sounds fast. I, I'm hoping I got my fingers crossed for that one for sure. Yeah. Um, any guesses what, Christianity might look like in 500 years? <laughs> Big question. I, <laughs> no. And uh, the best that I could come up with, because, and this is because my wife and I have been doing, we were doing a Star Wars binge. Oh, right? fun. Yeah. May 4th. Um, and there's this line that Mark Hamill says in The Last Jedi uh, to, to Daisy Ridley. And he says, if... To, say that if the Jedi die, the light dies is vanity. Hmm. And I thought that is such a great reassurance for sort of the, the American church as it sort of historically existed is to say like that we can't let this fear of death keep us from 
continuing to change because to say that if the church dies, the gospel dies is pretty vain of us. Yeah. Wow. That's great. I love that tie-in. And so what does the church look like in 500 years? Um, I don't know, but even if parts of it die, the gospel's not going to die. And, uh, and to me, that is, that actually offers like a really profound sense of peace. I love that. I love that. Thanks, Eric, for that. That's, that's going to stick with me. You have two things I love. Thank, thank, <laughs> stick thank, with me. thank Ryan Johnson. I know a lot of Star Wars fans. <laughs> that was a great line. That is a great <laughs> line. All right, Eric, where can people yeah. find out more about you? Yeah. Um, my website is Eric Atchison, E-R-I-C-A-T-C-H-E-S-O-N.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at Rev Eric Atchison. Um, and Facebook, same thing, Rev Eric Atchison. And uh, you can come see uh, the banter between me and, and Lauren on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> All good. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's, that's, that's both the easiest and for me often uh, most enjoyable uh, place to find people. Awesome. And your books are both available, I'm assuming, through your yes. website or um, Amazon? My, yes. So uh, through Amazon, through my publisher, which is uh, Church Publishing, the Episcopal Press, uh, mm-hmm. churchpublishing.org. Uh, Barnes and Noble, um, Christian Book, uh, kind of a lot of different outlets where you can you can uh, find them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Eric, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I appreciate your time and stay safe, stay healthy, and peace be with you. And with you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey. Before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks and go in peace.